I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Brian Boyer is an architect with Dash Marshall and partner in Makeshift Society, a co-working space in Brooklyn. He was a policy team member at CITRA, the Finnish Innovation Fund, and lately he's become obsessed with understanding independent work. In a wonderful set of provocations in Medium, you wrote that the labor market transition we're living through, the shift in what work we do, where we do it, who we do it for, how much time we spend on it, and why we work at all is not temporary. And it's happening whether we're ready for it or not. Describe what you see happening. Uh, so one of the big things that I think we've all experienced in different ways is the fact that there are fewer and fewer people who have jobs that last the bulk of their career. Um, there are also fewer and fewer people who stay around for more than a few years at any particular job. Um, and part of that has to do with the fact that it's easier than ever to exist on your own. Um, we now have access to healthcare. Uh, we have really robust uh, communications technology that allows us to work more flexibly from more places, you know, including places we don't want to be working, <laughs> like hotel rooms while we're on the road. Um, and so all of that adds up to a situation where it's it's easier for people to kind of carve out their own opportunity for work. Um, some people have the luxury of doing that uh, positively to to find their kind of ideal working situation. But there are also plenty of people who find that they're having to scrap together a working situation or an income generation situation because they've been let go from their company or they've lost whatever opportunity that they held on to before. You've called independent workers the leading edge of the workforce. Why? I always like to frame things in a positive way, um, but it's not blind positivity. For me, when I was doing the research, uh, into the independent workforce, what really came out is that it's a set of people who are motivated more by their interest in a particular kind of work than any sort of rebellion or rejection of the corporate form. From an individual standpoint, the transition that we're seeing is about people being able to follow what makes them most effective, most efficient, most engaged, most happy. And all of that means that if we understand this mindset and this approach to work, it helps us understand the future of employment as well, not just freelance or independent work. You ask a question that I think too few of us are asking, and, and that is, what if our institutions were designed to enable change and renewal? What would that look like? Right now, we see it in the tech world. Right. So if you are harboring an idea for the next app or the next website, they're actually institutional or the equivalent of institutional uh, forms that are willing to support you. So you can go and find somebody who will throw 10,000 or tens of thousands of dollars at an idea to allow you to test that and see if it has a market. And that's really valuable because it means that we have a, a low cost, low risk way to weed out the ideas that don't make any sense and identify the ones that do. The problem is that right now, that opportunity is pretty much limited to things that have the potential of scaling to become the next global whatever, right? The next Facebook, the next WhatsApp. And there are many things that are part of, an important part of our daily lives that will never be that, right? Parks, libraries, middle-class jobs. So when I look at the institutions that we have, they were largely created for a different era. So things like 
the Small Business Administration or the Chamber of Commerce, which are the traditional institutions to support business in in the U.S., they don't necessarily uh, have the ability to keep up with innovation. And so right now, you kind of have to make a choice whether you want to go down a venture capital route and you can be very innovative and be very experimental, but only in a certain kind of business. Or you can linger with traditional institutions where rules of the game are such that you have to be more conservative and more traditional. And that leaves a gap in the middle where the kind of innovation that will change the street level and the life of our cities um, is really being left in a no man's land. One of the problems in understanding the independent worker is that the data are so wretched. Do we know anything for certain about this group of people? Certainty is a tough thing to have, I think, in any area. You're right that the data is mixed. You can look at the census. You can look at labor statistics. Um, Everybody's measuring it from a different perspective. You know, I take the mismatch between the data that we have and the anecdotal experiences that many of us are having uh, to mean that there's something really interesting happening here. So the fact that data doesn't exist doesn't mean that we can't take this seriously and doesn't mean that there's not an imperative to work. It does mean that we need to figure out what we should be tracking and we need to invest in that. One of my big obsessions lately is in getting to cheap data, like enough with big data. We need to make it cheap to measure things because right now the tools that we have for measuring things like the statistics around independent work are just It takes a ton of time and effort to do that. Organizations have traditionally provided us with the container for scale necessary to get important things done. One of the things that, one of the questions I think is, is can the independent economy be stitched together in a way that allows you to achieve scale without the container, without the organization? Well, it's a question about stitching, as you put it, right? Or I think of it in terms of glue. What's the glue between people who are working together? In previous eras, it's been the corporation. And, you know, we have to admit, uh, it's wildly effective. So whether we're happy with its effects or not, the corporation is this amazing platform for collaboration between people who don't really share anything or don't necessarily share anything. The thing that I'm obsessed with now is what's that next glue that we use to allow people to have a relatively high degree of autonomy, but still be able to work together. So in the past, the corporation was a trade. You give up autonomy, but you get the ability to work together. And we need to find a way to retain at least a little bit more of that autonomy so that we're able to weave work into a life that's meaningful and satisfying to us on a more holistic level, not just in terms of what we do in the workplace, but also in terms of our relationship to our family, to our loved ones, et cetera. And so the stitching would include things like, obviously, technology, right? Technology can stitch us together yeah. across distances, perhaps co-working spaces like makeshift, mm-hmm. maybe. What else is part of the stitching? I think they're probably new habits, you know, new behaviors on a, on a subtle level. Things like, how do you tell people what you're interested in or what you're available for? You know, we have right now old-fashioned person-to-person social networks that allow us to do that. Even if we're using technology, we communicate those kinds of characteristics of ourselves through old-fashioned networks. Again, the magic of a corporation as a container for human activity is that it allows people who don't necessarily have those networks already to find each other and, and do something. I'm interested in this question of whether there's also a new operating system or a new process or a new uh, set of standards 
that allows people to subscribe to a, a way of working together. And so that that's the thing that becomes portable. I think that there's some opportunity in that space, but I don't know exactly what it is yet. I know that it's not just co-working spaces. Putting people in a room is really useful, uh, particularly in terms of building up a baseline of trust between individuals who see each other again and again on a daily basis. But it doesn't end there. You know, Even as an architect, I'm not silly enough to believe that being in the same room will cause that kind of transformation. Well, that, and that raises a question about the ability in an independent economy. Can people work from anywhere? Is the place you work increasingly severed from the clients you serve, or maybe even the workers with whom you're uh, collaborating? Well, we certainly do see a high degree of mobility. In co-working spaces, there's you know, some double digit percentage of, of people in any given space who are remote workers. So for instance, in our space, we have a fashion designer who works for a company on the West Coast, and she's a, a full-time employee. We also have people who work out of New York for clients in Europe, the South Pacific, and elsewhere. So, you know, I think because there's a high degree of mobility on an individual basis, that means that we have long distance relationships with our clients as well, quite often. The next question then is how many of those long distance working relationships started as long distance. And most of them that we've seen did not. Most of them start co-located. And then somebody moves for personal reasons or you know they follow their partner to another place or there's some um, happenstance of life that causes that transition to happen. And from that perspective, I think it's, it's very positive, right? That um, the technology we have allows us to still continue or to keep continuity of activity, even when we don't have continuity of place. But for me, place as the starting point is still hugely important. There's no competition for it. And this is a real dilemma for mid-sized cities in America. Mid-sized cities are at a disadvantage in that there are simply not as many choices, right? Not as many clients, not as many colleagues as there are in much larger cities. And so you see this, you know, this move to to the large, and because we're more mobile, you see increasing moves to large population centers, which I think leaves a lot of mid-sized cities scratching their heads. What can we do? What can we do other than offer up, um, we're cheaper, right? Which is not a sustainable competitive advantage, I would argue, in a global economy. So thinking about this independent economy, can you imagine advising the mayor or the economic development organization in a mid-sized city what they might do to be more competitive for this market, take advantage of this market, thinking about the independent economy as a, a real part of the economy, not some sort mm -hmm. of fringe thing? You know, what we see now in co-working spaces is that they're mimicking this trend towards diversity, where our space serves creatives, other spaces serve tech startups other spaces serve social enterprises. And so it makes sense to, to find yourself in a community or to find a community for yourself where there's enough overlap that you have shared interests, but there's enough difference in that community that you find new things and, and you're able to make new connections. And so I, I think that the same opportunity exists for cities where you're not gonna compete on the number of museums, right? but you can compete on the quality of a particular kind of culture that's there, a particular kind of music or a particular kind of craft or art or a particular industry. You know, I'm also interested in particularly cities that have 
a lot of empty space, how they orient themselves better towards manufacturing and production in a way that recognizes that some people are going to start out really small and have a growth trajectory. So how do you make room for somebody to begin in their living room, grow into a garage, from that into a small space, and from that into a factory in the periphery of town? If you can make that so easy that the people who begin in their living room want to stay, I think you've really found a unique opportunity. You, you actually did some of this work around the food industry in, uh, with Citra. Yeah. And I think the metaphor you used was like skipping stones. Well, it was this notion of you don't want to define the ecosystem. You don't want to leave holes in the ecosystem that say, okay, you can have a pop-up mm-hmm. restaurant, but then you have to go. And the next step is open your own facility, right? Your own bricks and mortar restaurant. You wanted steps and you recommended steps in between. Yeah. It sounds like you're describing the same thing, for yeah. instance, on the manufacturing end. Exactly. So if we think about it, a city that has a lot of pop-ups, might have a very happy population, right? They get to try interesting new things. They get to go to uh, exciting little shops or galleries that are in existence just for the weekend. And that feels really great from a cultural perspective, right? It it means that you have a a wonderful Friday night. But it also, to me, points to the fact that the city just isn't doing what it should be doing. Like, why shouldn't the restaurants and shops and galleries and services and public spaces that we want to have every day exist every day. So if we think about pop-ups as a workaround, I think it's it's at best net neutral. What What's happening is that we're not capturing any of that activity as part of the formal life of the city. And if we understand it as a way of, as a diagnostic, pop-ups can be a diagnostic. They help us understand what's not working. And if we take that seriously from a bureaucratic standpoint, a regulatory standpoint, and a finance standpoint, then we can use the workarounds that pop-ups identify as a way to say, okay, let's rewrite that process or let's rewrite that part of what it means to do business in our city and use that as a way to create a pathway from pop-up to incremental steps into, uh, into formal participation that's permanent and ongoing. What we'll see is that it's actually easier to stay inside that transitional track than it is to start something in a medium-sized city and then eject and go to a larger city. If many more of us are destined to be independent workers, how do we prepare ourselves? I mean, it it appears from the trend line, whether we're forced into it, whether we choose to jump into it, more of us will be independent workers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we spoke about in the beginning, the numbers disagree a little bit, but they all generally are trending towards more independence. I think the biggest learning from the work that I did previously was in this question of transition. So if you have more independent workers, it it doesn't mean that you're going to have more and more people who are just out of full-time employment and that's it. It means that you're going to have more and more people who are spending some time independent. And that means that you have generally more than just the one transition from full-time to independent. You have also people transitioning back from independent to full-time and then maybe doing that same procedure again later on. And so that asks the individual to have that kind of flexibility and uh, I think wherewithal to learn how to present themselves in a way that makes a unified story. How do you tell a, a story about the work that you did without a title, without a boss, without an organization, just a client? 
how do you tell that in a way that still can be part of your CV, right? When you've been working inside a company as an employee for 20 years. So I think it does go back to some very basic things around communications and around making sense of what's happening. But the flip is also true for companies. So if a company is evaluating a set of candidates for a job opportunity, for them to be able to truly make sense of somebody who's been working independently for a few years or even for more than that, how do they have the ability to evaluate that? Because the traditional markers that they would look at don't necessarily exist. Again, things like job titles, et cetera. So it, it requires the people who are doing hiring inside those roles to also be very flexible or, or agile in their thinking. Uh, which is not always the case. No. It's not generally the case. Not always. Right. You talked, you wrote about the difference between connectivity and connections and reputation and trust. And those are two things, we hear those words all the time as as we try to think about the economy, what we think about, what, what we're trying to create as individuals. Talk about the difference. Sure. Uh, let's start with connectivity and connections. So you think we've all been at some point on a conference call or a video call, for instance. Connectivity is, is about quantities, right? It's about, can we make this connection? Are we... Are, are we getting through from one point to the other? And the quality of the connection then is the next question. So like, yeah, I can reach you on the phone, but can we actually see each other? Can we actually communicate? We've seen kind of recent discussions around the future of cities, especially when we start talking about creative cities and these kinds of things, an emphasis on questions like how many flights are coming in and out of the airports? What's their connectivity to global networks? And while that's important, don't get me wrong, um, at the end of the day, if people can fly into your city and they can fly out of your city, the real differentiator is whether they stay or not. So the quality of the time that they spend there is going to be, I think, a competitive basis for cities moving forward, particularly cities that are not at the very, very top uh, 0.001% of global cities, right? So if you're New York or London, you don't have to worry about the kind of connections question as deeply because it's going to happen on its own. But if you're a smaller city, you need to figure out what's your competitive advantage. And the quality of connections between the people who come there to do business, between the people who live there, between the people who've grown up there, uh, between the people who, who find it as their new home, that's going to be a real central question. Um, and for me, again, that comes back to things around new behaviors and, and sort of new uh, rituals of, of living and working together, but also very basic questions about public space, about the design of the environments that we have and, and the character of our cities. In terms of trust and reputation, trust is one of the hardest things to make and one of the easiest things to lose. But it's absolutely central to everything we do from a personal level within our relationships to a business level in terms of how we're able to work together. So Yes, we write contracts, but we do not contract every single eventuality. There's all sorts of gray area there. And the reason for that is because if we were to write a contract that specified everything, it would be of infinite length and we wouldn't actually be able to do any work. So finding a way to find new sources of trust or to accelerate the creation of trusting bonds 
is for me one of the big questions right now. Again, because there are more connections that are happening, especially if you imagine more independent people working together, that means the number of connections necessarily multiply again. And what we've seen just in the past few years is an emphasis on reputation systems on social media and other online platforms. So things like Uber or Airbnb, et cetera, that allow you to rate each other. The problem with that, from my perspective, is that they're essentially privately captured, or they're not essentially, they are privately captured. So yes, Airbnb has an incentive relatively consistent about how they deal with their reputation, but they can also decide on a whim to change it. And my fear is not so much they would do that, but the fact that there's very specific private capital between all of those. And yet the discourse behind these sharing economy platforms is that they are the new economy. So we've always had a role for private companies in our economy, but I don't want private companies to define our economy. And that's the risk of relying too much on reputation systems that are privately owned. This may be my favorite question you've asked. Can we reformulate our cities to endorse lingering and inquisitive inquiry around acts of production with the same enthusiasm we've done around acts of consumption? What does that look like? Uh, <laughs> uh, it looks like makeshift in some <laughs> part. Um, at Makeshift Society in Brooklyn and San Francisco, both of our spaces are on the ground floor. We have big windows and we have a lot of confused people walking by, scratching their heads, saying, what is going on in there? We also have people walking in and saying, what's going on in here? And for me, those are some of the best moments because it gives us a chance to just explain in very basic terms, this is a place where people are working, they're making websites, they're making magazines, they're designing fashion, architecture, jewelry, et cetera, and all of that exists here in your neighborhood. And that notion is something that I think we've become immune to in a way, because so much of the actual work of our, of our lives has moved either up off the street, right, up somewhere into a skyscraper, or out of town. And so bringing that activity literally right in your face again, for me, is a great chance to spark up a conversation about the value of that work that's being done as well. And so... The question that I was asking in the paper that you referred to is really about how we can multiply that beyond you know, the tiny experiment that we have and that others are doing um, as well, but to things like manufacture of you know, small goods, ceramics, or of clothing, or of other items. It strikes me that at a moment where local craft is at its peak in terms of perceived value, that still so much of that activity is hidden. Right? We only celebrate it when we have special street markets or these kinds of things. And then it's purely the consumptive aspect. How do we make the production of those things part of our everyday lives? Brian Boyer is a partner in Makeshift Society in Brooklyn. Brian also has a wonderful set of essays, if you want to learn more about this topic, on medium.com. You've been listening to Night Cities, a production of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. I'm Carol Coletta.